0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. In January... 49 BC, Julius Caesar faced a decision. His his power, his popularity, had uh, as a Roman governor of the province of Gaul was growing, and he was uh, as he grew in popularity and power, the Roman Senate likewise grew suspicious and concerned, and they gave him an ultimatum. They told him, um, "You need to resign as governor. You need to disband your your army." Um, or you will become an enemy of the state. And so Caesar led his army to the banks of a small river that, barked, that marked the boundary uh, between Gaul and Italy. And Rome, uh, there was a law at the time that forbade any uh, general um, from leading his army from an outside province into the, the uh, the country of Italy. It would have been seen as an act of of treason and a declaration of war. And so Caesar, uh, with this ultimatum, um, leads his army uh, to the banks of this river and he faces a decision. By crossing the river, not only would he be breaking the law, but he's also rejecting their ultimatum. And as history tells us, Caesar waded into the water, into the river, and said the die is cast. Now this would mark the beginning of a 3-year-long civil war and at the end of it would leave Julius Caesar the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. Now that small river that marked the boundary between Gaul and Rome uh, or Gaul and Rome is known as the Rubicon. You may have heard that phrase to cross the Rubicon and what it means is uh, it, it's it's making a decision with, with finality. It, it's a decision with um, immense consequence. Because, see, Caesar couldn't cross the Rubicon without consequence. And once he crossed the river, he couldn't take it back. It wasn't like he could say, hey, my bad, I didn't mean that. Once he crossed the river, the die had been cast. The decision was made. For Caesar, it was the point of no return. This morning, as we look at Esther chapter 7... So to speak, she crosses the Rubicon. She crosses a point of no return. If you remember back in chapter 4, Esther had made the decision uh, in in communication with Mordecai to identify and stand with her people. They have been under this, this edict of death. And Mordecai says, Esther, you're the only one who can go before the king and plead the case of her people. and She agreed to do so. And at that point, the gears of her plan are set in motion, but up until now, she could have backed out. Everything that's happened at this point uh, was important, but she hadn't crossed that point of no return. She could have changed her mind. She could have decided to go in a different direction. But in this chapter, chapter 7, Esther crosses the point of no return. And what she does is she tethers her life with the life of her people, She seals her fate with their fate. She identifies herself as a Jew. And as we work through the narrative this morning, we're going to see two main movements. The story really breaks down into two narrative movements. So first, in verses 1 to 5, we will see redemption through representation. That's our first point. It'll be redemption through representation. In these verses, we see Esther, both brave and brilliant... And she will take up this role as a representative. She will stand up, stand for, and stand with her people as they are redeemed through representation. Second, in verses 6 through 10, we'll see justice through reversal. We're going to see justice happening through a reversal. So in these verses, we get the end of Haman's fall. We started to see it last week and now we see the completion of his fall. And it's really poetic justice. Justice is served and a great reversal takes place against all odds. So we'll see justice through reversal. So let's jump right into it now to see our first point, redemption through representation. So a quick recap, if you're new or haven't been paying attention, previously on Esther. If you remember last week's episode, Sleepless in Susa, the king has a night of insomnia That's a good one. That's a good one. All right. He has a night of insomnia. He can't sleep. So he calls on his servants to read him something that might help him fall asleep. And so of all the books in the palace, the king decides on this book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. And I imagine that would probably put most of us to sleep as well. And of all the pages to turn to, the servants pull up this account of when Mordecai had uncovered an assassination uh, a plot, an attempt on the king's life. And as they keep reading, uh, the king stops him and says, hold on, hold on, hold on. What was done to honor Mordecai? What did we do for him? I mean, he, he uncovered this plot. He saved my life. What did we do to honor him? And they said, hey, the record shows that nothing has been done. And these were people who kept meticulous records, not only of what happened, but how they honored those who showed this kind of loyalty to the king. And what they find out is that Mordecai had been overlooked. Nothing had been done. And so instead of putting the king to sleep, it actually puts the king into action. The wheels start turning in his mind. Okay, we didn't honor him. We need to do something. We need to rectify that wrong. And at just that moment, we find Haman had entered the outer courts to speak with the king. And the thing he wanted to talk to the king about was, hey, I would love to execute and hang this man named Mordecai. He just gets under my skin. I don't like him. He doesn't honor me. And I've built this impressive 75-foot-high gallows to hang him on. That's what he's about to go ask the king for his permission to do. And you just think about these gallows, 75 feet high. That's like a, a normal two-story house is about 25 feet. It's about three two-story houses stacked on top of each other in the ancient world. No cranes, no, no modern building tools. It, 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 it's, it's unnecessarily high. You don't need a gallows that high. It's, it's impractical. Like How do you even get the guy up there after you've built this thing? Really, it's maniacal. It's maniacal, and it shows his pride. And as it so happens, Haman's plotting all of this. The king sees him, hears something, and he asks, like, who's out there? And they say, well, Haman's out there. And so the king, meanwhile, is trying to figure out what can we do to honor Mordecai. And Haman is the grand vizier. He's like the king's chief advisor. So the king's thinking, how convenient. My, my chief advisors out here, I have this problem. I'm going to call Haman in to ask him his advice on what should be done to honor Mordecai. And so the king asks, what should be done to honor the man? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And as it just so happens, he doesn't reveal whom he wants to honor. And Haman's pride is so great that he assumes he must be talking about him even though he hasn't done anything that is worthy of honor, he just assumes the king must be talking to me, about me. Of all the people and all the provinces of Persia, if there was one person that the king would delight to honor, it would in fact be me. All assumption due to his preoccupation of self-absorption. And so Haman suggests that the king take this man that he delights to honor, dress him up. And the king's royal robes. Put him on the king's horse. Parade him down the street. And to take one of the king's high officials. To take on the role of a servant. And lead the horse. Lead this man through the town. Saying over and over. This is what happens to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king thinks this plan is brilliant. And he says go and do this to Mordecai. In fact, he says, your plan is so good. Leave nothing out. Like every detail, make sure you follow it to the T. And you could just imagine Haman's face just dropping as all of the honor that he wanted to go to him is now being given to Mordecai. It's the Perfect picture of Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And as the episode ends, Haman goes home. He's defeated. He's humiliated. He invites his friends over. His wife is there. They offer him no comfort. In fact, they speak truer words than they themselves know. You remember those words? Esther six thirteen: If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him they don't know that the the very words they're speaking are incredibly weighty and prophetic because his pride has gone before him and he is about to fall now we pick up the scene in verse 14 while they were yet talking with him that's his wife and his friends the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared Now, if you remember a few chapters ago, Esther had risked her life to seek an audience with the king. And she's doing so to plead the case of her people. And because she's wise and faithful, she doesn't storm into the king's presence where he could have her executed. She kind of lingers in the outer courts. He sees her. He invites her to come in. He extends the golden scepter, which is essentially pardoning her. From sure execution. And further, he says, I am so delighted to see you. Ask me for anything, even up to half of my kingdom, and it will be granted to you. He extends grace and an invitation for a favor. Now, here's Esther's dilemma. See, on one hand, she's been invited to ask the king for anything. And so we might think, hey, this is your moment. Don't waste it. Ask him to save your people. You would think she should just go ahead, write them before he changes his mind, make her request. But see, the request isn't that simple because the king himself is complicit in this edict of death against the Jewish people. So if the king, if she says repeal this edict, it's also implicating the king. Because he'll have to admit that he was wrong in the first place to have this um, edict Uh, there to kill all the Jewish people see this is a man as we've gotten to know King Ahasuerus he is a man with a very fragile ego At, at, at just the slightest hint that he may be wrong at the slightest hint of opposition he bursts into these terrible fits of rage he has a reputation for temper tantrums and so Esther both fueled with her faith To go do something exceedingly dangerous. And also being wise. She's put her faith to trust the Lord to protect her. To provide for her. That he cares about his people. And she's also thoughtfully come up with a plan. And so instead of making the request. She invites the king and Haman to a feast. So she shows him great honor. As we've gotten to know Ahasuerus, we know this is a man who loves to feast. He loves to dine. And so she's playing into that. And she does this whole feast just to honor him. What she's doing is essentially building up capital and favor with the king. And the feast goes so well that during the feast, the king says for a second time, hey, ask me anything, even up to half of my kingdom, and it will be granted to you. So then we're thinking, okay, now's your chance. But instead of asking, she said, you know what? Why don't you come to a second feast? And if I find favor in your side at that feast, then I will make my request. And so now the time has come. The second feast is about to begin. The eunuch mobile shows up. They grab Haman and they head to the feast. Verse 1. So king, the king and Haman went in to feast with the queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther... What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request, even up to half my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. Now, I don't want you to think dinner party. You know, a dinner party lasts for a few hours. It's, they're fun and enjoyable. That's not what this is. This is a feast. These kinds of feasts would, would go on for days at times. In fact, we hear that by the time she's making this, uh, when, the, when the king asks her, it's into the second day of this feast. And now this is the third time in the book that the king has asked Esther the exact same question. And so when you read it now, if you're reading this for the, for the first time, imagine you might be thinking, okay, you don't really know what she's going to do. Two times she's already punted. You know, she's, she's gone in a different direction. So you're wondering, is she finally going to make the ask? Is she ready now to cross the point of no return? Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now with this, Esther finally crosses the point of no return. And what she says is equally brave as it is brilliant. Again, keep in mind, she has to walk a tightrope. On one hand, she needs to plead the life of her people, but she needs to do so in a way that condemns the edict without implicating the king. So she's got to carefully choose her words to navigate this moment. What she's got to do is, accuse Haman of this wicked, premeditated, evil plot without also connecting it to the fact that it was the king who gave his approval of the whole plan in the first place. Because if you remember, it was the king who signed off on Haman's holocaust. He heard the plan, he agreed to it. And so if Esther unwisely throws all that back into the king's face, his wounded ego might retaliate against her. And so she's got to uh, arouse the king's anger and his disapproval of the genocide and then take all that anger and direct it towards Haman. That's what she's got to do. Now, if you notice, the difference this third time around is in the details. The first two times um, Esther responded to the king, it went like this. If it please the king... That was what she said the first time. Then the second time she said, if I have found favor in the sight of the king. Now this third time she says, if I have found favor in your sight. Now you might think that that's just semantics. But I want you to notice that the first two times she speaks to the king, she uses this kind of distant third person. The sec- This third time she makes it personal and connected. She says, if I have found favor in your sight. See, it was very common to speak to royalty in the third person. What it does is it is it essentially says, you're you're so other than us that I I can't even speak to you directly. I can't invoke this more connected, personal, second person. I need to stay distanced. I need to stay removed. It would be like us saying Mr. President, you don't walk in and say, hey Joe, what's up? Right? You're not his friend. You can't do that. You need to say, Mr. President. You need to stand when he enters the room. You need to remain respectful and distant. That's what she's done the last two times, even though she is his wife. She is the queen. But now this third time, she appeals to him. She's trying to make a personal connection. So she's built up all this capital over these two feasts. She's paid honor and homage to him. And now she wants to remind him, you are my king, and I am your queen. This is me, Esther, the one whom you have chosen. What she's doing is she's standing in the middle. I want you to imagine her with a rope. And she stands right in the middle of the rope. And she takes one end of the rope, and she tethers herself to the king. She's saying, look, we're connected You are my king and I am your queen. And with the other end of the rope, she tethers herself to the people of God. And she says, but I'm also connected to them. It's brilliant what she's doing. And though she doesn't come out and say it, she uses enough of the official legal language of the edict to make that connection. See, the wording of the original edict said this, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions. Listen, these three words are important. To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So what she does is she takes enough of the language of the edict. And she says, me and my people are under this sentence of death. ...to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. And the original edict said this was going to happen to the Jews. So then she says, that's who I am. I'm under that same edict of death. It's subtle, but it's uh, specific enough to make that connection. So she's trying to downplay enough of the edict... ...but also let him know this is a real and present danger that we are facing. In her request to the king... She's saying, we have been sold to be completely annihilated. So what she's doing is she's trying to carefully thread this needle as she makes her appeal. And at this point now, she's crossed the line of no return. She has crossed the Rubicon. she is, her fate is now irrevocably attached to the fate of her people. There's no going back. Now at this point, we have no idea how the king is going to respond. We have no idea if he is going to be favorable towards her or if he's going to be enraged. See, if anything, over the course of the book, we have found the king to be temperamental. He flies off the handle at a moment's notice. He is not a measured person. He is not a thoughtful person. You remember back in chapter 1, he banished his wife, Queen Vashti, just because she told the king, no, So who knows how he's going to respond? Who knows if Esther won't share the same fate? And we know that she sees him this way because when she originally decided to go before the king, she said, I'll make the ask, and if I perish, I perish. She knows full well that there is a danger at going before the king. We simply don't know how he will respond to Esther's hidden identity. So she says, my king, my life is in danger And if you want to save me, your queen, then you must save my people. To save me means to save my people. To save my people would also save me. What's also brilliant is she puts this egotistical man into position to be a savior, to be the hero. And you know what? It lands. And we know it lands because in verse 5 you read this. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? So she kept the details vague enough. She didn't say, Oh, by the way, you gave the approval of the plan. She just leaves that right out. Not important, right? Doesn't matter. But she's given enough detail that the king's anger has been stirred to move against anyone who would dare to endanger Esther's life and the life of her people. It is brilliant in its tactical precision. It's brave and that she's willing to cross this point of no return and step into a moment of great danger. She is now the representative of her people. She is now the mediator for her people before the king. Do you see that their fate will be her fate? That her fate will be their fate. That whatever is going to happen to her will now be what happens to them. And what happens to them will be what happens to her. If the king decides to save the people of God, then he will also be saving her. And if the king decides to save her, he is essentially saying, I will save the Jewish people. Her life will be their life or their death will be her death. They are now inextricably linked. She has identified herself with the people of God and there is no going back. See, we find the people of God have no hope of rescue unless someone is willing to stand with them, to stand up for them, and to stand for them. The people of God have no hope of redemption unless someone is willing to identify with them and represent them before the king. In other words, the people of God need someone who will stand up for them and someone who will stand with them. And that's exactly what Esther does. She takes a stand as their representative. Now what makes this so compelling is this is not just the story of Esther. In fact, if you are a student of the Bible, you'll go, this sounds really familiar. We see this playing out over and over. In fact, this is the story of the entire Bible. You could go back, turn you know, to the left, and you'll find a list of enemies and foes. Like, think back to the Canaanites. They opposed the people of God as they settled in the Promised Land. Think of the Egyptians who enslaved the Israelites. Think back to the Philistines who constantly tormented the Jews. Think back to the Babylonians who destroyed the temple and tried to eradicate their culture. And the list goes on and on. And then, for every moment when there is an enemy and a foe, you can find a list of mediators who God raised up at just the right time to stand up and to stand with and stand for the people of God. Think back to Abraham, who was called to leave the comforts of home to stand up and to go into the land that God would show him. Think back to, uh, to Moses, who was called to give up his position of royalty and to stand with and identify with his people as slaves and go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. Think back to David, who fought against Goliath. He bravely stood up to represent the people of God. And what did he say? He says, I will stand for the people. Whatever happens to me will happen to them. If I win, then my people win. If I lose, then my people lose. Think back to Daniel, who stood up to Nebuchadnezzar to say, our God is able to deliver us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not worship false gods. See, the list goes on and on again. Each one, a compelling story of redemption through representation. I just want you to get that category in your mind. That when redemption comes, it comes through representation. That God raises up someone to stand with and stand up and stand for the people of God. But also what we find in each one of these compelling stories is that redemption and rescue, though it is achieved each time... It is short-lived because yet another enemy comes. And what this is meant to do is to create in us a longing to say, When, Lord, when will redemption come that is lasting, that is everlasting, that doesn't fade away? When will we have a mediator? When will we have a representative that brings everlasting redemption? See, each storyline in the Bible has a gospel arc to it with a trajectory that's meant to point us to a greater rescue, to a greater mediator, to a greater redemption through a greater representative. Now I want you to also think about our story. You and I here today, we too are a people condemned under an edict of death from our sin. We too are a people left on our own without hope. We too are... A people in need of redemption. And likewise, we too are a people who need someone who would will be willing to go before the king on our behalf, to stand up, to stand with, and to stand for us. We too are a people in need of a representative who would bind his life to ours, who would stand in the middle to tether one end to himself and to tether another end to the king. We, too, are in need of a representative who will be willing to cross the point of no return and bind his life with ours. Thanks be to God that someone has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the truer and greater Abraham, Moses, and David, and Daniel. He is the one that they were all pointing to. Jesus is the truer and greater Esther. He's the one who says, I will stand up, I will stand by, and I will stand for my people. Now, don't miss this. And all of these other gospel-shaped stories, we see this mediator stand up and stand with and stand for the people of God. And they achieve victory. And they all live. The walls of Jericho fall down. The cities are put to the sword. The Egyptians are washed up on the shore of the Red Sea. David cuts off Goliath's head. And in all of these cases, the Redeemer achieves redemption through victory, and they get to live. Each one bravely faces the threat of death, but each time their life is spared. Esther also bravely faces death, but her life is spared. And what makes the story of Jesus even more compelling is that his life wasn't spared. And it wasn't merely the fact that That his life wasn't spared because the Jews were envious or Rome was spineless. It wasn't that Jesus was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, didn't say, Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Rather, Jesus says, Let my life be given up for my wish so that I can give it to my people. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What is a shepherd? He's a representative of the sheep. And he says, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, the great representative, lays down his life for his people we are a people in need of redemption through representation and our greatest need is met and our great redeemer Jesus Christ that's our first point we need to see today is redemption through representation now let's see justice through reversal in verses 6 to 10 Esther said a foe and an enemy this wicked Haman then Haman was terrified before the king And the queen. And the king arose in wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So, as we pick up the story, we see that Esther has the king's attention. She successfully stirred his anger, and now she goes about directing that wrath towards the enemy. And Haman is outed for the wicked enemy. That he is. So the king says, who would dare to do this? She says, it's that man right there. It's Haman. And Haman knows his time is up and he is terrified before the king and queen. And so the king is so angry that he leaves the room to gather his thoughts in the garden. And we're not given insight as to why he leaves the room or what all's going on in his mind. Perhaps he's out there considering and connecting all the dots as he remembers, oh yeah, I had a part to play in this whole genocide project. Maybe he's trying to figure out how he can uh, make this right and save the Jews and also save face. Maybe he's finally coming to see Haman for the wicked manipulator that he is. Maybe he's trying to figure out how do I get rid of Haman? It's very likely that all of these thoughts are kind of swirling around in his head. Regardless, he's furious and he leaves the room. Now, if you're thinking about the scene, that leaves Haman and Esther alone together. And that puts Haman in a bit of a predicament. He has, as far as I can see it, three options at this point. Option one, he can follow the king out the door and try to plead his case with him. I mean, Haman's pretty good with words. He's a good manipulator. He knows the king. But he also knows that the king is enraged, and when the king's enraged, he's not reasonable or favorable. So he doesn't do option one. Option two, he could flee the room and try to uh, escape the, the palace. He could run, and he could try to get away, but he knows he won't get very far, and by doing so, he would solidify his guilt. So he doesn't do that. So what does he do? Option three, he stays in the room to beg for mercy. Now, the reason this option is problematic Is because there was a law at this time, protocol with the harem, that no one but the king was allowed to be in a room alone with a woman of the harem. So if Haman was following protocol, when the king left the room, he should have left as well. In fact, protocol said that a man couldn't go within seven steps of a harem woman, even if there were other people in the room. So even in mixed company, you got to stay at least seven steps back. No option is favorable. He's a dead man walking. This reminds me of Psalm 7, verses 14 through 16. Listen. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. What has happened? Haman has plotted mischief. He's spun a web of lies. He's laid a trap for the people of God. He dug a pit to bury them. And what happens? He is falling into his own pit. He is about to be buried in the grave he dug for himself. And so with no favorable option, he takes his chances with the queen and he begins to beg. Do you see the poetic justice here? It is really satisfying. The man... Who became so enraged because a Jew refused to bow to him. What is he doing? Now he is bowing before a Jew. It's like the definition of poetic justice. He is now groveling, begging, and bowing before a Jew to save his life. Verse 8. Then the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman at that moment. So the king comes in at the exact moment that Haman is falling on the couch where Esther is. And the king said, will he even assault the queen and my presence in my own house? So picture it in your mind. Esther's at this dining table. And because this is Persia, it's the the Middle East. They're not sitting upright like we do. They are reclining at the table. So it's like a little bitty couch. She's laying at the table. The king has left the room. And right as the king walks back in, he is falling down on the same couch where Esther is. He's not supposed to be in the room. Let alone seven feet next to her. And now he is falling essentially on top of her as the king walks in the room. Do you remember those prophetic words of his wife Zeresh unfolding before him? She had told him the night before, you will not overcome Mordecai, but what? You will surely fall. And now he is falling down before Esther to beg. And he's doing so precisely at the moment when the king returns to the room. As we've tried to point out all throughout the book of Esther, even though God's name is never mentioned—it's the only book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned—you see His hand all over this book. I mean, just the the I mean, hundred or so coincidences that have had to happen to get us to this point—coincidence after coincidence—to the point that though He is never mentioned, it is impossible. Not to see God as the primary mover, working in the details, moving through the decisions and desires of all the characters to achieve his providential purposes. In fact, there's one uh, ancient Jewish rabbi who commented on this passage and thought it so providential that Haman would fall on Esther at the exact moment. He uh, speculates and says, perhaps the angel Gabriel pushed Uh, Haman down just at the precise moment. Now I think that's kind of wild speculation, but the point that that, that it makes is it's happening at just the right moment, that it is impossible not to see the hand of God. I kind of like to picture Gabriel in the background just kind of pushing Haman down. I kind of like that, but it's wild speculation. But his hands are all over the details. Everything plays out exactly according to God's providential plan. Now the king, he doesn't interpret this as um, Haman begging for mercy. He doesn't see this as a desperate move for a man trying to to beg for his life. He interprets this as sexual assault against the queen. In fact, the Hebrew word that we translate assault was used for this. It was used to describe sexual violence and rape. So he's making an accusation. The king is saying Is he really going to try and make a move on Esther? So if you're reading between the lines, on one hand, it's very unlikely that the king actually believes that in this situation, that's what Haman's doing. But Haman has broken the protocol. And what this does is become a convenient way for the king to get rid of him. In fact, it it plays out probably even better than he had thought when he took his moment outside of the palace, he comes in and finds something altogether even better for him. So now he can accuse Haman of sexual assault. He's broken Harem protocol. And so now, as the king, he can get rid of Haman. No one's going to ask any questions, and no one will, uh, and it diverts all the attention away from his part in the genocide against the Jews. What I want you to see here is the king's not interested in justice, this is not a just man. He's interested in saving his own interests. And now he can get rid of Haman without getting into all the details about his part in the whole mess. And in a kingdom where people are killed for walking into the king's throne room, what do you think is going to happen to the man that the king charges with assaulting the queen? Verse 8. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, wouldn't you know, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. So the words of accusation, they leave the mouth of the king, and the matter is settled. He is the judge and the jury. There's no trial. Haman is guilty and in a passage just steeped with irony, what we, we see that Haman's pleading for his life, him going to beg for the queen, is actually what costs him his life. And what do they do? They cover his face. Now, I want you to see this is significant, that they cover his face. You see, what is the face? The face is like the center of human presence, right? When you want someone's attention, you, you, you want their face. You want them to look at you, and you, and you, and you engage in this, this personal connection. In English, we talk about the face and presence, and we use two separate words. In Hebrew, it's just one word, panim. Panim means presence, and it means face. So what happens here is this. Haman, everything has been about elevating his significance. Everything has been about people acknowledging his presence everything has been about me the the thorn in his flesh the 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 pebble in his shoes that there's one man who would deny him to elevate his significance and presence and now what do we see happening his face and his presence have been covered in shame see when you make everything about elevating your presence and shame eventually it will be covered in shame And almost on cue, one of the eunuchs says, hey king, did you know, just so it turns out, that Haman has built an impressive gallows, and the person he wanted to hang on it was Mordecai. You know the guy who saved your life? The one who you just honored? That's what what he wanted to do. And this just adds insult to injury. Haman had been plotting to kill the guy who had saved the king's life. And so the king issues his sentence to have Haman hung on the gallows that he built. By the way, the word for gallows is the Hebrew word etz, and it means tree. So he says, essentially, Haman has built a 75-foot tall tree. Reminds me of Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, same word, etz, gallows, tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged Man is cursed by God. The parade that Haman planned for himself went to Mordecai, didn't it? It honored Mordecai instead of him. The gallows that Haman plotted and planned for Mordecai will become his own doing. The man who was so obsessed with his own exaltation and elevation is ironically elevated, isn't he? He is elevated high and lifted up, shamed and cursed to die on a tree The man who wanted to be high and lifted up is now high and lifted up, though not in the way that he had planned. The disgrace and public humiliation he had plotted for Mordecai becomes his. The honor Haman wanted became Mordecai's. And here we see justice through reversal. Justice comes through reversal. Now here's a question. Why do we feel like justice has been served? Like no one... I'm guessing, is over there going, poor Haman. Like he was accused of a crime he didn't commit. I mean, essentially, he's, he's hanging on a gallows for a crime he did not actually commit. He didn't assault Esther. He was begging for his life. But on the other hand, as the readers, we know something that none of the other characters know in the story. Listen to one commentator. He, read, he writes it like this. When we read this, none of us instinctively feel that Haman has been treated unjustly. Instead, there's a righteous satisfaction at seeing Haman meet his end. What could be more appropriate than for the would-be murderer to be hung on the same gallows he had prepared for the innocent? We only feel that satisfaction because we know things that no single character knows in the story. We know that Haman has plotted in secret. We know the anguish of Mordecai and Esther. We know that something has kept the king up at night. See, the narrator gives us an omniscient God's eye view of the story. And that's why we feel that justice has been done. It's not the king's justice we're pleased with, but the justice of God before whom all hearts are open. See, this points to a reality that we need to hear this morning. Eventually... Every Haman will fall. Eventually, every injustice will be righted. And what I think we're getting here is a preview of that reality. It's a glimpse. It's a taste. It's not the fullness of justice that's to come. But it is giving us a preview. What it's telling us is that, listen, justice may not always come when we want it or how we want it. And it may not even come in ways that we can understand. Because that's what's happening here. Justice is being served against Haman, and yet the characters in the story don't even fully know. We're just given this omniscient God's eye view into what's happening. But one day, there is coming a day when true everlasting justice will come. One day, every Haman will fall. And we're given an omniscient God's eye view of this story so that by faith, when we're looking around us, And we can't understand what's going on. And we're looking at the details of our lives. And we go, I don't, I don't, like how could there be justice here? Like why is God letting this happen when we don't understand what's going on? We're given stories like this to remember and go, God is always at work. He is always superintending and working through the details and the situations to bring about his justice so that one day all the Hamans will fall. Nothing's left to chance. The arc of history does, in fact, bend towards justice. And it is right and fitting for us to have a longing in our heart to go, we want to see good triumph over evil. And as the people of God on this side of the cross, we already know that evil has begun to fall, don't we? We already know that sin and death and Satan, the great Hamans against humanity, have been dealt a fatal blow in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And by faith, we know that it's only a matter of time before Jesus comes to finish what he has started. Eventually, eventually, Every injustice will meet its end, and justice will come through a great reversal. And so until then, we eagerly await with patience and endurance, and as the people of God, we can pray, Lord, come quickly. Two quick points of application. First, let Jesus stand for you. I want to specifically speak to those in the room who aren't Christians, If that's you, as I say this all the time, we are so incredibly glad and thankful that you would spend your Sunday morning with us. But if you aren't a Christian, Esther chapter 7 is an invitation to let Jesus stand up, stand by, and to stand with you. Haman hung on a tree for his sins. He died for his sins and he was cursed. And this is, unfortunately, the fate of all those who want to stand by themselves. At the end of the day... At the end of the day, you will either stand by yourself or you can have someone stand with you and stand by you and stand for you. And you might be thinking, okay, well, how does that work? I have sin. How will that be dealt with? How can I escape hanging on a tree, as it were, and suffering the curse for my sin? What do I want to do if I don't want to stand alone? And if you're thinking or asking that question, it may be the most significant question you've ever asked in your entire life. And fortunately, the Bible answers that clearly. Galatians 3.13, listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, this is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Christ was hung on a tree. He was hung on a tree for your sins, and he stood in your place. See, someone has to hang. Someone will be cursed on the tree. It will either be you or it will be him. You will either stand alone and pay for your sins alone, or you will have your sins paid for by Jesus. This is the simplest way I know how to say the gospel. On the cross, there is a great reversal. The gospel is this, that what should happen to us happened to him instead. And what should have happened to him, honor, glory, dignity, happens to us. It's a great reversal. So I beg you, let Jesus stand for you. Don't stand by yourself. By faith, ask him to stand with you and to stand up for you and to stand next to you. And God's word promises... That not only will he stand for you on the day of judgment, he will stand with you this day, now, and forevermore. So, first, let Jesus stand with you. And second, stand with Jesus. To all the Christians in the room, what it means to be a Christian is this that you have come to a place when you believe and you build your life on the reality that Jesus has stood up for you and has stood by you and delights to stand with you. He was willing to bind his life to yours, so willing, in fact, that he gave it up. And now what it means to be a Christian is to have in grateful appreciation for his willingness to represent you and to identify you, you begin to reciprocate that identity. That you say, Jesus, I'm so thankful that you would stand up for me and stand with me and stand by me, that you say, in glad reciprocation, I want to stand for you and stand with you and stand by you. You identify with Jesus because he has identified with you. So you stand for Jesus when he stood for you. So what does that mean? It means you proudly speak of your savior to others. It means that you let his example shape your life. You could spend all afternoon thinking of ways. How can I stand up and stand with and stand for Jesus? And by God's grace, I pray that we would So that we, by our example, would show what it looks like when Jesus stands for you. Let's pray.